I had somebody recently say in a very well-intentioned, loving way, you know, how we can help the challenged people or take care of the challenged people. And I thought, well, maybe the challenged people need to take care of you. Welcome to the Protagonistas. Alrighty, so hi friends. Um, I'm so excited about today's episode because I'm here with Elizabeth Stazak. She is a disability advocate. She is a Coptic Orthodox Christian, which is super interesting. So Elizabeth and I met at in a class that we had together, right? Christ, women in Christian Leadership. And that was really fun. We got to just dialogue about being women and being, you know, uh, in ministry and uh, coming from different traditions and and we also got to talk about women who have influenced us or we got to do like a big project on pe- women that we admire and, and how they have you know changed the course of our faith. And I was so interested because Elizabeth mentioned just a Egyptian Coptic, correct? Yeah. Coptic. Saint. Oh, yes. Right? Yep. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that's, you know, we, we don't talk about... Um, I guess, saints that are not directly within our tradition. And so I was really, really excited about that. So anyway, I'm happy to record this episode. I'm so excited to talk about disability justice um, because that's something that I haven't yet done on this podcast. And I have been, I've been friends with Elizabeth uh, since we took that class together. And we've, we've had just such wonderful conversations about this. So anyway, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Stazek and I I am a scholar and a disability rights advocate. I am working on my Master's of Divinity degree and I am just recently sort of have delved into this world of disability studies that I didn't know existed and I chose Fuller for its kind of wide lens um, approach to theology and Christian faith backgrounds, I felt comfortable coming as a Coptic Orthodox Christian. Yeah, that's amazing. So actually, can you talk to me about being Coptic Orthodox? Like, did you come from that tradition? um, And what made you follow that path if you didn't? Sure. So I did not come from the tradition. I'm not Egyptian. I'm very Scandinavian and Polish, (laughs) Eastern European. I went to Claremont Graduate University for my master's degree in religious studies and there they have a big Coptic studies program Mm. and it's it's a secular university so you get to study religion very freely Mm. alongside people of all kinds of faiths and not faiths right Um, and I studied Coptic art and I was taking a class called Bishops and Orthodoxy, and I met a good friend of mine, who who is now a good friend of mine, who's Coptic, and she uh, generously offered to take my friend and I to an Easter liturgy, Hmm. and we are big nerds, and so we were geeking (laughs) out and trying to follow the Arabic, the English, and the Coptic, because Coptic looks a lot like Greek. It has similar letters. So we were excited that we could read some of it and chant along. And when I was at the liturgy, I just knew instantly that I was home. Mm. And my friend wisely said, slow down. You're going to come across a lot of things that bother you and things Mm. that you're going to need to work through. And she was right. It took me three, four years to actually 
convert and be baptized into the church. Hmm. And it was a big process because I am a feminist and I am a Western, you know, I'm a product of my Western world going into and well, we call it Oriental Orthodox because mm. there's a, sadly, there's a schism between the Eastern and Oriental Orthodox churches dating back to the Council of Chalcedon. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's a different world mm. and it took me a long time to decide if I was willing to sacrifice mm. some of my personal beliefs for Christ Mm. who I felt was calling me into the church mm. despite my background. Mm. I grew up Lutheran. Um, I grew up having a female pastor. Mm. I didn't know any different. I never questioned that women shouldn't be pastors. Mm. And then I converted into a church that vehemently opposes mm. females in roles of power. Well. So what made you decide? So you said it was a three-year process that you were obviously discerning. And so, yeah, what was it that made you decide? A lot of prayer, a lot of deep spiritual experiences, Hmm. just in prayer with Christ, trying to discern, is this something I like or is this the path for me for the rest of my life? You know, I had Protestant friends say to me, Well, if you don't like it, you can always leave. Mm -hmm. But that's a very Protestant way of thinking, and that's (laughs) not an Orthodox way of thinking. So when you commit, you know, go big or go home. Yeah. It took a lot. Yeah. Um, So you did say that while you, when you first visited, that you felt like you were home, or you knew that you were home. Can you talk to me about that experience? And, um, And yeah, and just, and I was also interested that you started studying or no, Orthodox, Coptic, Coptic, Coptic sorry, Coptic art. Um, so also, like, what, did that play a role in, like, your decision? And if so, like, how? It did. Mm-hmm. So I love art. I'm mm-hmm. very visual as a person. I learn best that way. And I love beautiful things mm-hmm. and beautiful visuals in the world. And Coptic art, well... Neo-Coptic iconography is a movement, I think going back to maybe the 60s and 70s, with a man named Isaac Fanu. Mm. And his iconography is very standard now in Coptic churches. And I was praying and I had a vision of Jesus, um, just a brief, mm. you know, just a vision of Jesus. And it felt very comforting and and secure and later I came across a Coptic icon and it was the very Jesus from my vision wow. right down to the colors of his tunic, his robe. <laughs> and it felt very powerful. I felt very affirmed in my path choice. Hmm. I was younger then and very uncertain mm. and I I felt so affirmed by that and when I got to the church for the liturgy, so we cover our heads in the church, and that's controversial mm-hmm. sometimes uh, in Christianity, in Protestant Christianity. Uh, it feels maybe oppressive 
I personally enjoy covering my head because I feel like it gives me a veil and I'm sort of in my own world, Mm -hmm. me and Jesus. I also have given a lot of thought to Paul saying, you know, women who are prophesying should cover their heads. So when I'm praying, I think I am prophesying. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why Paul said that. I don't. (laughs) We can't go back and ask, although I wish we could. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to embrace the tradition. I don't like it when it's 100 degrees and I'm really hot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I've made some peace with it. Uh, I don't always cover my head if I think I'm not prophesying. But mm. if you want to take the Eucharist, you must have your head covered. Okay. So uh, I actually appreciated that. I felt it was very respectful. I also like the embodied worship of mm. orthodoxy. So if you want to, so many Orthodox churches do not have pews Mm -hmm. so that you can get down on the floor and do a prostration. Hmm. Coptic churches in the U.S. are trying to, I think, modernize, so they're adding pews. But you can step outside the pew and you can still bow your head and go totally on the ground in a prostration. And I really appreciate that sort of physical, active part of the worship, especially when the fractioning takes place and you are essentially a witness to the body and blood of Christ. Hmm. And it's a gift. It's a beautiful gift and a treasure, you know, something so precious and so holy. And I've always been looking, growing up liturgical Lutheran, I felt that we gave reverence to the Eucharist, but not enough. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when I found Orthodoxy, I thought this is how it should be. Hmm. And... It took me time to come around to the idea of it being truly the body and blood. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't touch it. They Mm -hmm. sort of toss it in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's part of the reason we kiss priests' hands is because it touches the body and blood of Christ, not because the priest is so special, but because what he does is so special. Mm. Um, He touches the body and blood. So... I loved that in the service. It's a, I think they call it smells and bells. Mm. There's lots of incense mm-hmm. and um, movement and the visuals, right? All the art surrounding you mm. and you're just, the cloud of witnesses is with you. Mm-hmm. We say that when we are praying the liturgy, we are joining with the 24-7 worship mm-hmm. in heaven, mm. not beckoning the spirit to come down but rather we join in and so we're taken to heaven basically in our worship so it's a really beautiful powerful time yeah wow that's what i love about it right i felt home who wouldn't feel home if you're in heaven right wow that's beautiful so you would say that that was specifically what made you feel like wow i'm home like the visuals that was yeah it was all the i felt that something was missing growing up i kept thinking well what's next what Mm. i believe christ gave himself up for the life of the world now what right and when i came to orthodoxy i thought oh this is what Mm. this is the mundane this is the everyday you're praying the book of hours you're fasting you're going to liturgy you're serving your your whole life is in the church and in the tradition and in in the truth and you're it's also a mystical religion you know Mm. you are wanting to be communicating with the spirit day by day minute by minute hour by hour so it's 
I thought, okay, this is the fullness, right? Mm. Not that Protestantism isn't right or good. It mm-hmm. is. I think Orthodoxy just offers more, mm. sort of the, the fullness, the richness. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You certainly uh, make it sound very enticing. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah. That's the goal. Right. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Um, so I would love uh, for you to talk or I would love to just have a conversation about disability and disability justice and your role in that. Um, so if you want to share a little bit about your disability and yeah, and just how you got into, obviously we know why, um, but just your journey of getting into being an advocate and talking about this. Yes. So you had told me that you listened to me speak in chapel. It was actually last it was to the day, last wow. Wednesday before Thanksgiving last year, I spoke in chapel for the first time publicly disclosing my disability. Wow, I have this <laughs> And it was a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, our director of access services had reached out and asked people if they would like to speak in chapel and that the theme was going to be disability and gratitude. Mm because it's Thanksgiving. And I know that the director of, of chapel services is so well-intentioned and loving and kind. For me personally, though, I was very, I, I felt very uncomfortable with the idea that I would be grateful for my disability. Right. I think some people are, so mm-hmm. they probably didn't have the same reaction. But for me, I thought, what am I what am I grateful for about being disabled, about being crippled, about being, you know. And so I didn't respond to the email for Mm -hmm. weeks. And I had a meeting with our director and she had said to me, you know, oh, I wish you had responded. And so finally I did respond and I said I would do it. And I prayed and prayed. I didn't know what to say. And I had had an experience in class with Erin Defoe Hunter Practices of Community where we were reading a passage in Matthew of the Sermon on the Mount and this was probably in October before before Thanksgiving and in that class I had had this sort of revelation I, I think I mm-hmm. hope mm-hmm. by the spirit that we were reading the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus was saying look at the the birds of the air and the flowers of the field look at how i provide for them you know how much more do i provide for you or paraphrasing Mm -hmm. and i was really struck by this idea they don't gather Mm -hmm. they are provided for Mm -hmm. and it spoke to a really wounded part of my core because before i attended fuller seminary i had had two more spinal surgeries so i have cerebral palsy but i also have spinal issues i had had a bilateral fracture in my lower spine and they had tried to fix it 10 years ago and it didn't work so the hardware was sort of loose and not doing its job so i ended up having and I made a joke, I think, in chapel, like back-to-back surgeries. So I was just making a pun to make people feel comfortable. But it's, it, that was my choice, of course, to have the surgeries like that. But I wanted to get them done. 
and so I could move on with my life. (laughs) And during that time, you're laying flat a lot, Mm. trying to recover. You can't bend usually for three, four months. And it's, you're tired all the time. Mm. And I would have, we joke about FOMO, but I would have really intense FOMO when I felt really isolated. So it was a, a time in Easter and we had family over and I ended up having to go lay down but I could hear everyone laughing and having fun and I hit a really dark a really dark moment um, probably one of the darkest I've had in my life that I didn't want to be alive mm-hmm. I and it scared me right uh, just as a shameless plug for therapy I knew at that moment I needed help beyond what I was getting from my prayers and from my family and I didn't want to kill myself but I didn't want to be alive because I couldn't do anything and doing things is sort of the basis of our society and how we live and if we're not productive what are we? We're right. useless, we're worthless, we're lazy, we're, mm-hmm. you know. So when I was sitting in that class with that scripture, it spoke to that old wound that I had worked really hard to move past. Right. And I thought, I don't have to work to have value. I don't have to be productive to have value. Mm-hmm. I have value in god's eyes just existing in the world Mm. and in fact my cousin who's actually more i would say in new age religion Mm. she had said a very similar thing to me back during that dark time Mm. you know you exist you matter our society like capitalism it depends on productivity and you don't have to do things to matter to us Mm -hmm. and to the world and and that really I heard it you know Mm -hmm. when you hear it but you need to hear it again you need to hear it many times and you finally internalize it and believe it and so that day in Aaron's class I shared it to the class and people came up afterward and hugged me Mm -hmm. and said thank you for it because they needed to know that they needed to hear it and so with that I took that to the chapel service and decided mm-hmm. to share about that because it had spoken to me. And in that, I had said, I had found a way to say, I'm grateful that I'm losing my mobility now because as a chaplain intern, so mm-hmm. I did some cl- clinical pastoral education, I had seen a lot of elderly people really struggle with sort of that immediate loss of Mm. mobility when they hit, you know, between 65 and 80, you know, that they're not able to do as much. They're not able Mm. to have the energy Mm. that they once did. And it's, it's terrifying. Mm. And so I felt really grateful for that. And that's how I shared and, that's how I sort of it fell into my lap almost and and I I thought okay I need I need to explore this further so I started and 
independent study, or I think we call them directed studies at mm-hmm. Fuller on ethics, disability mm-hmm. ethics, with our director of access services, mm-hmm. and it slowly started changing things for me. Wow, wow, that's so powerful. I want to go back to that chapel service because um, there you did say, and I'll quote you here. You said a month ago I wouldn't have wanted to talk about being disabled. Now, obviously, you talk about that experience in class. But you said that you were able to hide it really well. Um, can you talk to me about hiding your disability and your journey of starting? I know that this is part of your journey of starting to talk about it, but just this idea of, you know, yeah, hiding that aspect of who you are, that part of your identity, and then coming into a place where you're like, no, I'm going to embrace it and talk about it. And so, yeah, that's that's a really tough thing. So, and it's a constant topic, I would say, in the field of disability studies. So they call it passing. Passing is able-bodied. So because I have a, what I think clinically would be considered mild cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. and it's always affected me mostly from the waist down. Mm -hmm. My parents made a choice to give me many elective surgeries, correctional surgeries on my legs to help me move with more mobility, more freedom, sort of correcting the mechanics of my legs. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I was able to mostly hide it that I had this brain damage from birth. So Mm -hmm. cerebral palsy usually I think happens between birth and the first few years of a child's life if you have maybe a stroke or something. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of a definitive amount of brain damage. So it's non-progressive in that Mm -hmm. sense. What happens at birth stays at birth. (laughs) And I guess it affected mostly my lower half of my body. And I was different in school I was you know kids remembered me being in a wheelchair when I had surgeries Mm -hmm. but they they're kids they don't know right and so I got into high school I was running all the time and able to really just sort of pass pass as able-bodied and my parents in a good way wanted me to think you can do anything you want to And they also wanted me to stay active. That's really important. So they were putting me in all these sports. Mm -hmm. But it was really hard for me to play those sports because I can't operate at the same level as other kids. And so I had a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of shame about that and shame about the things I couldn't do. So it's easier to pass. For Mm -hmm. me, it was about shame. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other times it's about disclosure. If you disclose that you're disabled, there can be consequences, and usually will. There Mm. will be consequences, whether it's, you know, in the starkest, harshest of realities, being fired from your job, or, you know, of course, masked in another reason, Mm. or just the stigma that comes with disclosing that people just, I mean, we have our own minds and we just end up making judgments or assumptions and things once we hear that. So it it is very costly to mm. disclose, but it's also very costly to pass. Mm. And so in my disability studies foray that I sort of had started mm. um, in the winter after that Thanksgiving service, 
I really looked into sort of developing a theology of passing and how deceptive it is Mm -hmm. and what it does to hurt our faith and Mm -hmm. hurt our relationship with God and who we are in Christ. Can you talk to me more about that? Sure. (laughs) So I really didn't know where to start and there is a lot of material on passing Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of material on faith and Mm -hmm. passing so I think in a way it's sort of a new topic right and my teacher the director of access services said there might be an antidote to passing and it's in this a podcast by Rob Bell. Mm. And he talked, I think it was called, What is the Double Down? And he talked about doubling down and owning your identity mm. and how freeing that can be and how you don't have to have that shame. And it really impacted me. And I used it in a paper that I wrote to just start sort of developing that sort of theology just how harmful it is to live a double life right Mm -hmm. and I think this is a big theme in passing literature and also in my faith life you know am I hiding it at church do people at church or my my priest do they understand what my life is mm-hmm. with my disability no and that's not necessarily their fault because i don't let them know mm-hmm. so when i'm sleeping 15 hours a day because i'm so tired and i'm mm-hmm. missing liturgy all they know is that i'm missing liturgy they right. don't know why because i'm hiding it right, right. <laughs> so i have found an immense amount of freedom Mm -hmm. in in disclosing. Mm -hmm. And yet, so this weekend I was at American Academy of Religion's annual meeting Mm -hmm. along with Society of Biblical Literature, Mm -hmm. and they held a session on how to be hired with a disability. Mm -hmm. And it was actually quite disheartening because Mm -hmm. essentially they were saying, if you can pass, you should. And that is the harsh reality mm-hmm. of being someone with a disability right and every fiber of my being is saying no no more I'm not passing anymore yeah, yeah. you know I, I I've lived that life and that lie and it is harmful to mm-hmm. the very core of who I am and how Christ Christ has not chosen to heal me mm-hmm. I am the way I am and maybe it's for this purpose mm-hmm. because I I'm just learning the freedom of being who I am in Christ, Mm -hmm. unhealed for a bigger purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's something orthodoxy does well. Mm -hmm. It suffers. Mm -hmm. It's okay with suffering. It's okay with pain. I have never had an orthodox person ask if they could pray for my healing, for my disability. That's so, yeah. Never. Not one time. Because Mm -hmm. they know. Yeah. It's, it's my cross to bear, right? It's my, but it's also a gift. It's yeah. a gift. So in that sense, yeah, I guess I am grateful, right? I came around, but not in the way that maybe we would typically think about. Yeah. You know, embracing, embracing the pain and embracing the suffering. So I am probably what people would consider we call unhealthy disabled so there are healthy disabled and unhealthy disabled 
healthy disabled might be, and this is might be, you know, the guy on YouTube you see uh, doing pull-ups mm. in his wheelchair, Okay. right? He's mm-hmm. super jacked and mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a bodybuilder mm-hmm. and he's in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't have pain or whatever, right. but I certainly can't do any of that. Mm-hmm. So because of the amount of pain I'm in, so I didn't really mention, technically my spinal fusion worked, but the tone in my body, because my muscles are so tight and so tense, I have just unexplainable amounts of pain. And the neurosurgeon and the orthopedic surgeon and my physical therapist, none of them can really pinpoint why it's happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm just in a lot of pain mm-hmm. and having to deal with that. And then there are, so there are those categories. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to talk about too right. yeah. in terms of disability, just understanding disability. Yeah. It's so variegated and mm-hmm. broad and people have different needs. Exactly. And I think that that is what really plays into our faith too. How do we integrate people with disabilities into our faith communities, not only allowing them to come in and worship, but even, dare I say, lead worship, Mm. (laughs) Um, be a leader, be a teacher, be a pastor, be a preacher. And I don't think we, you know, we think about, I had somebody recently say in a very well-intentioned, loving way, you know, how we can help the challenged people or take care of the challenged people. And I thought, well, maybe the challenged people need to take care of you. Amen. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so that's something I'm really, I never knew I could turn it around on them. Mm. I never knew that I could push back. Yes. I never knew that I could fight from the margins. Yeah. Today I wore a t-shirt um, that says soft power, and it's mm. a concept uh from an exhibit at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And it's about being in the margins and being the vulnerable or the oppressed, but having power. Mm. And that's the the arts, the the podcasts, the discussions, the dialogues, the church meetings. Those are the places where that's what's gonna change the world. Vulnerability, I believe is going to change the world yes yes wow that's so powerful so you mentioned um well you mentioned two things that i thought were really good um the first one is when you said that you made a joke like having back-to-back surgeries you know just to make people comfortable right and that's something that i i've thought about a lot so i actually my in my old life i was a, a behavior therapist and so i worked a lot with children with disabilities, uh, auti- you know, children with autism, um, uh, Angelman syndrome, and, and things of the sort. And it's funny because, like, when I first started, um, you know, obviously, well, when I first started, I wasn't in my faith journey. Like, I wasn't, in, you know, a Christian. Or I mean, I, I grew up Catholic, but in that specific time in my life, I wasn't specifically in my journey, right? Sure. Okay. Sure. So um, I hadn't, you know, I didn't think about this stuff I didn't think about you know that wasn't something that I I thought about or I I part of the conversations and so in my first few years of doing therapy a lot of it was trying to I say force um 
children with disabilities to, you know, act as typical, quote unquote, neurotypical <laughs> children. Um, and so I would spend hours a day, you know, training. And I say training because it was literally training children on how to, you know, do things that other children would do. And, and the more that I um, got serious about my faith and the more that I, you know, I, got, I started seminary, I just like little by little began to felt atrocious about myself and mm -hmm. what I was doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like one particular student, he, he was 14 years old, he had pretty severe autism, but he would go to school all day and then he would be in and out of therapy all day and then I'd go to his house for five hours and I would just like, you know, try and get him to not do these maladaptive behaviors because it was uncomfortable for society to see him flapping his hands or it was uncomfortable for society to see him doing something that wasn't quote unquote like a typical behavior, right? Mm. And I just was like, wait a minute, why, why are we putting these children through absolute hell to act, to make other people around them uncomfortable when what we should be training society to, you know, be able to adapt to these disabilities. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's a very important thing for me in, in matter of like making people feel comfortable. So if you want to talk a little bit about that. I think, uh, I am a sort of a contrarian person by nature. In some ways it's good and in some ways it's bad and God is definitely schooling me and yeah in what is good about it and what is something I need to learn humility and obedience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I recently held a faith and disability student group meeting at Fuller and I titled it making a comfortable space for an uncomfortable topic, mm. talking about disability terminology, mm. language, just the way that we use it. Mm. And uh, my old boss said to me, well, why is, it, why is it uncomfortable? Why does it have to be uncomfortable? And I said, well, I think what I understood from people's... I, I was sort of shopping the ideas to students. If you were to come to this meeting, what would you want to talk about? Mm -hmm. And so many of them said, I feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. talking about it, and I don't want to mess up, and I don't want to offend people. Mm -hmm. And I think the same conversations are in talks about people of color and, mm -hmm. um, you know, terminology we use and how mm -hmm. to talk about it and making gaffes or, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> making mistakes. Right. And, and I think we are privileged as a body of Christ to have this, that we can offer that grace. Mm -hmm. We can create that space and say, you're probably going to say something you are, you're going to regret later mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Just talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I preface the meeting when I started the meeting, mm -hmm. I said, just so you know, I have been uncomfortable mm -hmm. talking about my own disability and my own shame and my own faith. I'm not now. Mm -hmm. You might be. Mm -hmm. And that's why I advertised it as such because mm -hmm. sometimes we're uncomfortable. Right. But I think it, what it matters most is having the conversation. Yeah. So I was reading Tisha Hedra's mm -hmm. book mm -hmm. and she writes a very similar recommendation mm -hmm. to talk, to have conversations about racism. Right. It's going to be uncomfortable. Right throw away your white fragility or whatever right. and 
talk about it. Yeah. And so I wanted that space. I wanted people to feel safe to mm-hmm. talk about it. And not, I know that in our society there's sort of a backlash about safe spaces. Mm-hmm. But I think as Christians, you can have a safe space that is still uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not protected, but it's safe in that it's gracious and it's mm-hmm. merciful and it's loving and it's humble. Right. That's so good. So that's that's my goal. Yeah. Let's talk about it even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, I said, or I was standing with a group of people at the meeting this weekend, and an older gentleman was standing next to me, and I, they said, oh, are you uncomfortable? Do you want to sit down? Well, I don't want to sit down, and this is something I think wheelchair users come across every day, is that you're not at eye level, right? You're always staring mm-hmm. at somebody's bum, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I said, no, it's okay. That's why I have the stick. I, I use a walking stick, sometimes two, so that I can lean on it. And the gentleman just said to me flat out, what, do you have a disability or something? Oh my God. <laughs> and <laughs> I just sort of looked at him quizzically, like, why did you say that, bro? Uh-huh. <laughs> but he made the gaffe, but he also learned from it. I could, you know, he immediately looked, you know, very apologetic and right. sorry. You know, I can't recall if he actually said sorry, but I, th- I think he did. And so he made the mistake. That's okay. You mm-hmm. know, he came into the space. He said what he was going to say. And, yeah. and it's also this sort of feeling tired, always having to educate people. Yeah. But I also think we're all educating people. We're always, all of us are, whether we're disabled, whether we're people of color, whether we're white, (laughs) whether we're Mm. able-bodied. We all have things that we can offer and teach people. And yes, it's tiring. And yes, some days I just snap back. Or, but I think it can, we can do better. So yeah. that's my goal. Yeah. And I'm learning. Right. Always learning. Right. And I make mistakes too. Yeah. I, I really do um, love that you mentioned that, that like we're going to talk about it and it's going to be awkward and it's going to be uncomfortable. We might say something really stupid, but like let's press past that and keep talking about it and keep, you know, because maybe the next time we won't say something as stupid. And, you know, and so, and I think that that is so huge as far as just justice in general um and having justice conversations you know i know that there's people that say like never claim that you're woke because you know there's always more waking up that you can do Mm. you know what i mean like Mm. and and that's something that you know i feel like i i'm not gonna know everything about every topic right like and we're we're gonna have our things that yeah that we're that we know more about and but that doesn't mean that we can't engage in conversations that um yeah that we can learn from and and of course, you know, um, like as you mentioned, not putting all the work on people with disabilities or putting all the work on people of color, you know, doing our own homework. But yeah, in these conversations, we are educating and we are being educated. So I think that, that that's really powerful. And so you mentioned your walking stick. I know that you've told me in the past that that has been sort of a symbol for you of like being um, being open about your disability and like learning to embrace your walking stick. So I don't know if you want to share a little bit about that. Yeah. So I didn't always use one. Um, I have had times since I was about 20 where I was wearing a back brace because of my surgeries. So I have had 
experiences with that. And really, I use the sticks now because of my back. So my um, stability is off, I, my, my balance. And sometimes I use footwear called foot-ups. They're these things that attach to your shoes and your leg, and they help you pick up your feet. And for, at least for me and my experience, and I can... I should have said this at the beginning. I can only speak from my experience of right. being disabled, and I wouldn't want to make generalizations. But I think there is a sense that with hypertonicity, in which your muscles are really tight and you have to pick up your feet, you end up dragging your toes sometimes. Your mm. your muscle, the mechanics are a little bit off. So I think people with cerebral palsy do trip and fall mm-hmm. a lot, right? So there are different tools and and the stick is obviously very visible right mm-hmm. a back brace might not be visible a foot up and you know support mm-hmm. might not be visible but a bat or a stick is very much as a kind of a symbol of i need support right mm-hmm. i need help right something's wrong right yeah. i can't even count the number of times people say what happened to you mm-hmm. as if i am able-bodied and normal and something had to happen Mm. for me to need that stick yeah (laughs) and that I didn't just come out of the womb needing it which sort of I did right you know in a sense right um and I sometimes wouldn't want it in pictures or things like that but recently Mm. I was with my sister and she was taking my picture and she moved to take my stick away from me and I said, no, leave it Mm. in the picture because Mm. this is part of who I am. It helps me. And I I think I have heard that echoed in certain parts of the disability community. Hey, like this, this isn't a symbol of shame. This is, this is something that enables me to move and go about my day and I don't always love it Mm -hmm. and it's not always easy I drop it Mm -hmm. every single day somehow somewhere right but that's okay yeah yeah that's (laughs) so good I mean I I think that yeah that is a such a symbolic thing right like your stick and just learning to embrace it and I'm sure that that's been such a I had this experience actually Mm -hmm. so as a chaplain Uh, intern Mm -hmm. I had the end of my tenure kind of come at the rehabilitation facility where I was serving my internship and they made a flyer to advertise a goodbye party for me Mm -hmm. and the woman who designed it specifically looked for a picture of a person with a stick I feel like it was Jesus so that was a little blasphemous it was sort of like a shadow thing but but it warmed my heart and brought wow. tears to my eyes because she included my stick yeah. and she saw it as a part of who I was. Wow. And it was just so sweet and so like cute right. and, and, and normal. Right. You know, normalized. Yeah. And just, it made me so happy. Wow. I saved the flyer. I put it on my fridge. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's so good. Yeah. Oh, that's, and that's kind of what I was, um, yeah, thinking about as far as like, making people uncomfortable or normalizing something or instead of like you having to take the stick away to take a picture like including that like in a flyer even or in a picture or in a you know um and so yeah I think that that's so special and I'm so happy that you got that experience thank (laughs) you okay so you did talk about uh 
And, and I do want to say, I know in the beginning when you mentioned that you got that email for that chapel service about disability and um, and gratitude. Like, I can only imagine, because even me, like, yesterday I was, I was watching that video where you recorded that, and I saw, like, that title, and, like, I literally rolled my eyes. Like, why, you know, like, <laughs> why do we, you know what I mean? Like, it feels, yeah, just very ex- exploitative, but... Um, But I do want to tell you, you did mention, though, that, and I actually have a quote here. You said, I have the privilege of getting to think about, and what you mentioned, getting to think about losing your mobility earlier. Um, You said, my disability has given me the privilege to live with this truth and embody this truth. Um, And I thought that was so profound. And and because you said it, like, I didn't want to, like, I'm going to be like, hey, so talk to me about how this is a gift. But because I know that that is a part of your journey and it is a part of something you've shared, I am curious just to hear about that privilege or that gift or yeah and how you um got to that place Hmm. yeah it's been a long time coming i think because i even in high school when i was passing as able-bodied i spent time at um, assisted living facilities with elderly people and I've always felt really privileged to sit at their feet and learn from them. Mm. That they are wise, they have lived lives, they have stories to tell. Um, I had a patient with dementia who told me the most fantastic stories. Mm. And sometimes she could do that and sometimes she couldn't even talk to me. She was talking to people in her mind, you yeah, know. Right. Or, she was like 103, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. being able to witness that time and time again, over and over, and then sort of think about myself and my own losses, mm-hmm. the things I grieve, mm-hmm. you know, that there is space to grieve now. Mm-hmm. It's not going to hit me when I'm mm-hmm. You know, I'm tearing up just thinking about it because I think, like, you know, I have a paralyzed vocal cord and I felt like my voice was stolen from me. I loved to sing. Or my spine Mm -hmm. doesn't work and I love to run, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And the things I'm grieving I feel were taken from me and I so can so deeply empathize with people who come to that place and and have it taken away all at once a lot of times right so I think learning that vulnerability is important and I do want to mention when we talk about disability or when we talk about race or when we talk about gender or anything I think it's important to, for all of us to always be mindful just in that humble way that this is a vulnerable thing for right. people. People feel free to come up to me and ask me about my stick and sometimes I don't want to. It's deeply personal. Right. It's, it's like wearing my heart on my sleeve, you right. know, and offering it to somebody else who probably it will sometimes doesn't deserve it in that right. moment or isn't ready to yeah. you know... And it's not like people with depression necessarily, people are coming up to you and saying, oh, you're depressed? What happened to you? Or mm. what, you know, why did this? So I think I think that's another good link between faith and disability mm. that we can, we can grow our community and be vulnerable and 
the vulnerability though we have to it's precious it's yeah. we have to cherish it and, and and treat people with that love and that respect and and that's why I think I was able to come to that space and say like I have that privilege it's a privilege mm-hmm. it's an honor to be in this kind of strange position in which I am struggling perhaps more than my peers mm-hmm. who are 30 years old you know that um, I have to sleep more or walk with these walking sticks or um, just learn how to rest, right, right. <laughs> learn how to be, and to still find gratitude and to still find hope and, mm-hmm. in, in the face of loss and suffering. Mm-hmm. So. so I've asked this question to other guests like, as I'm ending, and so I, since you mentioned hope and I don't know, what are some things that bring you hope? Mm. Christ, Jesus brings me hope above all. Mm-hmm. I think um, I, there's a really profound book called The Disabled God mm-hmm. by Nancy Eastland. Mm-hmm. And it imagines God in a sip-puff wheelchair, the kind that you have to blow into the... Um, device to move the chair Mm. and imagining heaven or new creation or new earth um, the resurrection that kind of hope I think there is space for all of us there and redemption from all the times we say stupid things because we mess up and make gaffes and make mistakes and um, I, I, I just think that's where I find hope is in that redemption and that just continual grace and mercy and love mm. um, just being made in the image of our creator and knowing this is not the end. Mm. This is not the end. We're at the beginning. Right. There's an artist I like, Misty Edwards, and she'll say, this is the beginning of the beginning. Mm. You know, There is just so much beyond this. And so, yes, we're in the trenches. Yes, we're in the margins. Yes, we're in the muck and the mud and just you know, slogging our way through oh, mm. every day. You know, There are t- days that I-, I have a hard time getting out of bed. You know, I'm in right. pain. I... And, but I, I know there's so much more and there's so there is this feeling of just possibility right. and and joy beyond anything I know. Yeah. <laughs> and I that's why I just you know, Orthodox Christianity, just to loop it back and bring it full circle, has this feeling that heaven and earth are not as far from each other as mm. we might think, you know, mm. they are more connected. And that's why we can ask for the prayers of the saints and they hear us and help us with their prayers and mm. pray for our salvation. And, and that community effort mm. is what brings me hope that mm. for every, every poor, well-meaning person who says to me, what happened to you? Or do you mm. have a disability or something? Or, yeah. There's five people who have my back and who don't disclose for me or Mm -hmm. who don't ask me that question or who say, how are you feeling today? Or could I carry that for you? Or, you know, so 
kind of like keep that faith, keep running yeah. the race. That's what brings me hope. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, thank you. And is there anything else that you'd want people to know? I think the disability community is wide. It has a really big presence on Twitter and Instagram and social media. I think I think that it is powerful and is doing a really good job. Like Zappos, the, is it just shoes? Is it a clothing and shoe company? Yeah, or I'm something? familiar with it as shoes, but shoes, it could yeah. be, yeah. They have a Zappos Adaptive and they make adaptive mm. clothes and shoes and things awesome. for people. And Target now is putting people in their ads. Um, not just children who are cute and can right. sell disability well, but people with prosthetic leg. I saw a big um, banner in the store with a woman with a prosthetic leg in the ad, and that was just really moving for me. I felt represented. I yeah. felt cared for. So I think the disability community is doing amazing things, and it's so broad and so big, bigger than I know. Right. And I want people of faith to join in yes. and be a part of that. And I think sometimes it's lagging a little bit in yeah. churches. We think we've done the work. We think we're open and inviting and inclusive and loving. And we say, well, people with disabilities just don't go to our church. Well, can they? Do you right. have a ramp? Yeah. Do you have space for them? Can there can there be a pastor who's disabled? Exactly. Do you have, you know, is it accessible? Is it inclusive? Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's that's what I would encourage people to be thinking about more, right. just having that awareness. So for, um, I've had people do this as an experiment, use every ramp and, and avoid every curb and every step. Use every handicap accessible entrance. Mm. Go around the back entrance. Go take that ramp. Mm. It's going to put you out of your way. It's going right. to take more time embody that experience mm. now no it's not going to make you totally understand but yeah. i think i and i know there has been backlash in mm. the disability community some people don't like that but i do because i think it's an embodied experience you can you can taste it right you mm. can you can step into that and then put yourself in someone's shoes right mm. and that will help you gain humility probably mm. most mm. likely right and yeah. I think that's a good place to start, you know? Inclusion and accessibility have to start with each of us. And yeah. it's hard, and you can't be aware of everything. That's why we have community. Right. We help each other become right. aware. So right. that's... That's so good. That's I, I, love, I that. love that. And I love that. Yeah, that homework of just um, training our minds to go there constantly, mm. right? Mm. Because, yeah, it shouldn't just be you or it shouldn't be a certain amount of people doing this, but... Um, we should all be doing the work of noticing and um, recognizing what's accessible, what's not. And like you mentioned, there aren't a lot of places that are accessible. And so, yeah, we need to all all do our part in that. So anyway, um, thank you so much for this. Thank you I, for having me. Yeah, I mean, this was such a good conversation and it was so good hearing from you. And I know that um, those, those listening are going to be really moved and really um, educated and moved and thankful for everything that you shared. And so, Well, thank you. I'm learning from you as yeah. we go. That's yeah. how it should be. Right, right. <laughs> um, and I, I do love, I just want to echo that, that vulnerability is precious. And it, it's something that it is a gift and it is a treasure. And so when people are vulnerable, that we should treat it as such, mm. right? And so mm. I just want to name that um, you know, in this conversation. So thank you. Amen. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, thank um, you. Yeah.